Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ, and welcome to the audio ministry of Christ Church of Livingston County. The following are three excerpts from a Covenant Renewal worship service led by Pastor Dirk DeWinkle, teaching elder at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Saints, hear the word of God, our passage of confession for this Lord's Day. It is taken from Exodus 20:13, and it is the sixth commandment of God's perfect law. You shall not murder. In our depravity, we often seek to narrowly define sin in the self-deceived attempt to avoid guilt. We must remember this tendency of ours when we hear the sixth commandment. If we limit murder to the literal unjust taking of another person's life, then it would be very easy for all of us here to deceive ourselves into thinking that we have never violated this holy commandment. But we must pay attention to the Catechism, which asks in question 106, does this commandment refer only to killing? The answer should bring us to our senses. By forbidding murder, God teaches us that he hates the root of murder, Envy, hatred, anger, vindictiveness. In God's sight, all such things are murder. This is the plain teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ in the Gospel of Matthew, in chapter 5, and verses 21 through 22. Have you ever envied another person, lusting for that which belongs to them? Have you ever permitted hatred and anger to burst from your lips as an insult against another person made in the image of God? And which one of us can honestly say that we have never sought to take vengeance on another? We must understand that all of these sins have a common root in us. The godless pride that would ruthlessly destroy others in order to gratify our own wicked desires. Such pride directly contradicts the nature of the living God, who gives himself freely for the sake of others, as he did in the giving of his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Saints, let us put off this pride. Let us recognize that we have all indeed broken this holy commandment, though our hands may have never shed blood, and confess our sin to the Lord, seeking his forgiveness. chapter 10, and we're going to be looking at verses 35 through 38. Now you see the title of the sermon is The Plentiful Harvest, and if you've looked at the passage ahead of time, then you have an idea probably of what this sermon is going to be about, and the application of this sermon. Here the Lord Jesus is encouraging us, uh, or his disciples anyway, in the immediate context, that the harvest is plentiful. And that, of course, is an encouragement to do evangelism. Why? Because at that point in time, there were the elect in Israel who were who would believe upon hearing the gospel. And so he was encouraging his disciples to go out and to preach the gospel, that the kingdom had come in Christ, so that the elect would come to faith in Christ and respond to the gospel. I think that that is an encouragement that we need to hear today. We need to be reminded of the fact that the harvest continues to be plentiful in our day. And it's a very important point that we actually believe that. 
Because if we don't believe that the harvest is plentiful, then I'll ask you a question. How diligent will we be about going about the work of the harvest? If you don't believe there's a harvest to be had, you're not going to waste your time out in the field seeking a harvest. And so the point I really want to emphasize this morning as we look to our Lord's encouragement to us is to remind us of the importance of evangelism. And not only of the importance of evangelism, but also the promise of a fruitful, of the fruitfulness of our efforts. That as we go out into the world and as we share the gospel, we are not merely spinning our wheels. It is not a futile task. It is a task the Lord says will be rewarded. It's a task that will produce fruit because the harvest is ripe and continues to be ripe. Please listen carefully to the reading of our Lord's word, beginning in verse 35. I said Matthew 10 at the outset, I meant Matthew 9, forgive me, we're in Matthew 9, 35 through 38. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Now, let's take a look at the context in which the Lord Jesus was giving us this teaching. We see here, as Matthew tells us, that our Lord's concern was for the lost sheep of Israel. And he's not referring to the Gentile world. His, his concern is with Israel proper. And we see that uh, later on in chapter 10, verses 5 through 6. And his urgency arose from the judgment that was about to come upon the world, or excuse me, upon Jer uh, Jerusalem and Israel specifically. As we know, in 70 AD, Jerusalem and the temple would fall as Christ's judgment against Israel's rejection of him. And as a result of that fall and that judgment, Israel would be scattered and they would no longer have an opportunity, the church would no longer have an opportunity to evangelize the Jewish people, the people of Israel, as she did at that time. So the question is, why was Israel like a sheep without a shepherd? That's something Matthew points out to us. This moved our Lord to compassion as he looked upon the people and, their, and their, the condition they were in. They had no shepherd. What led to that state? Well, really, I think the book of Ezekiel, in, in chapter 34, the prophet gives us an idea as to why Israel was like sheep without shepherds. Because her previous shepherds, which is a reference to her leaders, and we can think also of her kings and her priests when we think of the former shepherds of Israel, they had fed themselves rather than feeding the sheep of God. And as a result, as we learn in Ezekiel 34, God's sheep had become a prey. They had become prey animals. But as we also see in Ezekiel 34, specifically in verses 23 through 24, God had promised to one day send his servant David to shepherd his people. And his servant David would truly protect the sheep and would do the things which the false shepherds Pre that preceded him had not done. They had not fed the sheep, but they had fed themselves. Christ would not be that kind of shepherd. He would be the shepherd who truly fed the sheep. And then in Christ, that promise was fulfilled. So let's think for a moment as to why Christ is a better shepherd than those shepherds that preceded him in Israel. That's an important point. And I think it's also a comfort for us because we are also Christ's sheep. Well, we can say this much, 
that Jesus is a better shepherd than those that preceded him because he actually has compassion upon his sheep, unlike those who came before him. Those wicked shepherds, those rulers of Israel, they did not feed God's sheep. As we read in Ezekiel 34, 1 through 10, they actually allowed the sheep to be scattered all over the place. And as being scattered without a shepherd, what happens to sheep when they wander from the fold and they're wandering through the wilderness? Well, they become prey. Those of you who know what sheep are like understand that they're not really equipped with the means for defending themselves. Their only means is to run away, and they don't run very fast. And that was a problem with Israel. Without her, without shepherds to protect her, she had no means of defending herself. She was in desperate need of shepherds, and the heinousness of her leader's sin was their neglect of her need, of allowing her to go unprotected and feeding themselves instead of protecting the sheep. But we have to understand is that the Lord Jesus Christ is the exact opposite of that as our shepherd and as the shepherd of Israel. He is compassionate. And how do we know this? Well, I think that Christ's superiority and greatness as a shepherd is demonstrated especially in his willingness to lay down his life for the sake of his sheep. And we read of that in John chapter 10 and verses 11 through 18 where the Lord Jesus is contrasting himself really with those shepherds who had come before him. He's saying, listen, those guys were like hired hands. When the wolves came, they ran away. They were interested in saving their own skins. They did not love the sheep. I am the good shepherd. And that means when the wolves come, I don't run. That means I lay down my life in order to feed my sheep and to keep them safe. So there's the, the greatest example of Christ's greatness and love as a shepherd, is that he shed his own blood and gave his own flesh for the sake of his sheep. Another point uh, that demonstrates, I think, our Lord's compassion for his sheep is seen in the fact that rather than scattering his sheep, he actually searches for them, while the wicked shepherds did not. And God takes them to task for that in Ezekiel 34, verse 8. My sheep are all over the place, and you guys aren't going off and looking for them. You're allowing them to be out there on their own. Notice that the Lord Jesus is the one who, the one shepherd who will lead the 99 to go and find the one who was lost to bring them back to the fold. And he did that by humbling himself. Really, we could even say by humiliating himself and becoming one of us and taking on flesh, becoming like us in every way, as we read in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. And so we know that Christ is the good shepherd because he's, he came for his sheep. He leaves the 99 to find the one. He's nothing like those shepherds that preceded him. And we also see his loving kindness as a shepherd here and his instructions to his disciples to pray for the Lord of the harvest to send out workers to gather the harvest. Because the Lord, in sending out those workers to gather the harvest, he is sending out workers to find and gather his lost sheep to himself. So that's another note where we see Christ's compassion upon his sheep. He sends out workers to find his lost sheep and bring them back into his fold. Now, a question we have to ask as we look at this passage, since Israel is the focus here and not the rest of the world, is we have to ask the question is whether or not this passage actually applies to us. Jesus has compassion on the lost sheep of Israel. There's no mention of the Gentile world here. All of us gathered here this morning, as far as I know, are Gentiles. And we live in the Gentile world. So the question is, does the Lord Jesus have that same level of concern for us and for our unbelieving neighbors as he had for the lost sheep of Israel back in the first century? And I think we can answer that question with a resounding yes. 
The Lord Jesus does indeed have just as much concern for the lost sheep of the world and not only of Israel proper. And I think we see that concern again mentioned in the Gospel of John in John 10 and verse 16. Listen to what our Lord says there in John 10, 16. He says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold, meaning Israel. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. Obviously a reference to the church, one flock and one shepherd. And that other fold, the fold that was not of the fold to whom he was speaking, means the rest of the world, not Israel. He has sheep of another fold for whom he has just as much concern as he did for Israel. And we see this, this concern of our Lord's for those who are lost, his sheep that are lost. In Matthew 28, 19, this is where his concern culminates. This is where he does indeed commission his church to go out and to disciple the nations. And in that commissioning, he is doing exactly what he instructs his disciples to pray for in verse 38. Through the Great Commission, Jesus is sending out workers into the harvest. That's exactly the intention of the, commission, of the Great Commission. He is sending his laborers, his disciples, out into the world to find all of those whom the Father had given to him so they might be gathered to his flock and into the church. That's what's happening in Matthew 28, 19. So we can see that this is an answer to prayer. That's a unique thing. Well, it's not an answer to prayer. It's not a unique thing. But it's an encouraging thing that we see the Lord giving us the instruction or giving the instruction to his disciples in verse 38 to pray for workers to go out into the harvest. And then we see at the close of Matthew in 28, 19, that prayer is answered. And the Lord gives his commission. Go now. You are the workers. Go and gather my sheep. And they've enjoyed some level of success, because here we are in 2013, North America, right? And we know that we were the lost sheep, and yet we've been gathered to Christ. So they have been successful thus far in reaching out to those lost sheep from around the world. So we understand now, I think beyond a shadow of a doubt, that the Lord Jesus has the same degree of concern for the lost of the world, for his lost sheep within the world, as he did for the lost sheep of Israel. So here's another question. Can we say that the harvest is just as plentiful today in the world as it was in Israel at the time? Now, when we think about what was going on when Jesus gave us this teaching, we know that crowds at this point were still flocking to him. And so for the disciples to hear him say, well, the, the harvest is plentiful, so pray for the Lord of the harvest to send out workers, if we had been his, with him at that time, we would have easily seen his point because of the crowds of people that were gathering around him and coming to him for healing and for teaching and so on and so forth. It would have been easy to come to that conclusion. Yes, look how many people are coming to Christ, or at least are willing to listen to him, who want to hear from him, who want to receive teaching from the, from his, uh, from the Lord. Now, I ask that question because when we look at the world around us today, we don't necessarily see the same kind of thing happening, do we, in regard to the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't see people flocking to him in great numbers, at least not from our very limited perspective. It doesn't look like it did then. Actually, what we see, at least in our immediate experience within our culture, and what we're hearing all the time, ad nauseum, from the, the popular media, is that the church is dying. How often do we hear that? That the church needs to change, that she needs to catch up with the times, and what she means by that, she needs to abandon the gospel and become like the world instead, 
and that young people are leaving the church in droves. So this is what we're hearing from within our culture. The church is dying. The church is shrinking. And when we hear things like that, saints, it's, I think it's tempting for us, at least it's tempting for me, to doubt what Jesus says, that the harvest is plentiful. Because when I'm listening to the popular media and I'm listening to what's going on within our culture, my thinking is, you know what? America is not a field that is ripe for the harvest. America is a barren wasteland, a spiritual wasteland. And what do you do with a wasteland? Do you spend any time at all going out and attempting to harvest anything? Not at all. Not at all. And so believing that the, planet, the harvest is plentiful, that's really a step of faith. Believing that the harvest is plentiful really contradicts our experience and what we're seeing with our eyes. We're living sheerly by faith alone and not by experiences. Uh, when we look at our culture and say, you know what, I see a lot of unbelief and rebellion against Christ, but the Lord says the harvest is plentiful, and so I'm, that's how I'm going to live. That's how I'm going to act and order my life, is based upon the, the promise that the harvest is plentiful. Even though I don't see it, yet I believe it. Because the Lord has said, he has his sheep, and they will come to him, and no one will keep them from him. So is the field still ripe for the harvest, or has the land become barren? Now, as I said uh, earlier, as I already mentioned to you, this question matters because what we believe about the harvest determines how much time and energy we'll devote to working the field. Notice, for the Lord, the bounty of the harvest motivated something. What did it motivate? It motivated earnest prayer, and it justified sending workers into the field. It, it justified mobilization. It, it justified giving time and sacrificing time and gifts and energy in order to procure that harvest. Think of it this way. The amount of work a farmer puts into a field is determined by what he believes about the field. A fertile field is worthy of being worked because it promises a plentiful harvest. But if a farmer believes the field is barren and sterile, then he won't waste his time. And I think the same is true for us as we look at our nation, even as we look at your immediate community, perhaps. If we don't believe that there's a plentiful harvest to be gathered, then we won't waste our time in the field spreading the gospel. What will we do instead? Well, this is what we'll do instead, I think, if we allow ourselves to doubt the truth that the, the harvest is plentiful. I think we'll cloister. And I'm saying these things because this is what I find myself being tempted to do. I realize that in my heart, in my life as a pastor, my bent when I'm doubting the success of evangelism and our efforts to reach the lost for Christ, my knee-jerk response is to simply give up and make a number of excuses and justifications for not even attempting to reach out to those who are perishing in their sins. Here are some of the excuses <laughs> that I have used, not that I have necessarily uttered with other people, but that, which I have certainly said in my own heart when it's come to whether or not I ought to share the gospel or do anything that could be considered outreach of any sort. I can say things like this, um, what's the point? They're probably not going to believe anyway, right? They're probably not going to believe. Most people, nine times out of ten, when you share the gospel with a person, they don't come to faith in Christ. I can all, I've also said things like, I'm not gifted in that way. That's just, I'm not an evangelist. I'm not gifted in that, so I'm not going to try. Uh, I've also said I'm not prepared. Now's not a good time. I barely know this person, and so on and so forth. 
Now, the thing that's underlying all of that excuse-making is the belief that I am going to fail, that my efforts to gather the harvest are ultimately futile, and when I believe that, it becomes very easy for me to justify not making the effort and not being very uh, diligent and try attempting to gather that harvest. And let me be clear here as well. I don't mean to suggest to you that evangelism and going out into the field to gather a harvest, that does not only entail one-on-one -on -one evangelism or going from door to door and handing out tracts. Actually, in, in our context, I, I'm beginning to doubt highly the usefulness of going door to door and handing out tracts. Right? And besides, I don't think that's a very strong, that has a very strong uh, reformed tradition behind it of passing out tracts. I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, I know in my, where I've come from in my walk with Christ, uh, handing out tracts used to be very popular, you know, and I don't think that's quite as effective as, as it could be. Uh, so evangelism, I don't mean to so narrowly define it that it can only look a certain way. I think evangelism can have any, look at a number of different ways and have a number of different applications in the way we reach out to those around us. But evangelism must always entail this. It must always entail the preaching of Christ crucified. That's always going on whenever evangelism is happening. You're telling the world what Christ has done and why he has done it. He came to suffer as the wrath-bearing substitute in place of his people. And there is no other way of salvation beyond coming to faith in him and the blood he shed for us on the cross. That message always must be conveyed when evangelism is going on. And there is such a thing as pre-evangelism, where you're actually taking steps to reach out to those who are lost. And you may not necessarily share the gospel with them in that instance, but you are at least opening the doorway to begin building a relationship with them so that they know who you are. They know that you have a concern for them. They know that you are trustworthy, and they know your name. That's a wonderful thing. If they can know your name and know who you are, that's the start of a relationship and a potential to one day be able to share the gospel with an individual. So I don't want to give you the idea that engaging in evangelism means you must go out in public, grab people by their lapels and throw them up against the wall and ask them if they were to die tonight, where would they go? It doesn't always look like that. Does that. Is that necessary at times? I think in certain circumstances, that kind of uh, urgency is certainly necessary, but not in every case. Nor does evangelism need to look like street corner preaching, although I think street corner preaching can also be appropriate. But you don't have to be a preacher on a street corner in order to engage in evangelism. You just have to be willing to tell people about Christ crucified. If you are willing to do that, then you are able to engage in evangelism. You don't have to be a master apologist. You don't have to be a biblical scholar. You don't have to have a seminary degree. All you must do is understand the gospel and be able to share it clearly with those who are willing to listen. And you can do evangelism. That's what the Lord calls you to do. We don't want ourselves to fall into the trap of thinking that evangelism is for specialists only. Because that great commission the Lord gave us, he gave to his entire church, not just to the pastors and not only to the evangelists, but to everyone who calls him Lord and trusts in him for their salvation. <clears throat> so how do we engage in all these things? How do we even begin to make inroads to our communities and with our neighbors in order to share the gospel with them? Well, I think, and I'm speaking here from personal experience, I think we must first overcome our nascent unbelief. And I say it's nascent because I'm not sure that we know it's there. At least it surprised me when I recognized it. 
We must stop thinking that the field is barren and instead, by faith, trust what our Lord has said. And what he has said is that the harvest is plentiful. What does that mean? Well, it means that Christ still has an untold multitude of sheep that yet need to be found. There is still a great harvest to be had. And that's something that's hard to believe when the field looks barren. It's hard to look at a field that has nothing growing in it but thorns and thistles and say, there's a harvest there for me to gather. But here's what we have to remember when we're doing that, when we're looking at a barren field and trusting and, go, and by faith saying, there's going to be a harvest there. We have to remember that God is the Lord of the harvest. Jesus says that to us here in verse 38. Pray earnestly for the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers. What does it mean? What significance does that have for us, the fact that God is the Lord of the harvest? Here's what it means. Very simply, our God can make a harvest spring up from barren land. You know, saints, this is what God does every time a person is born again. And here's why I think Reformed theology, which is really, in my understanding, biblical theology, that's where it helps us to understand how evangelism works and why we can believe it, should, it will be successful. We know that according to Ephesians 2, chapter 4, uh, chapter, verses 1 through 6 of Ephesians 2, that we are born in sin. We all understand that. That's the whole point behind the tea and tulip. Total depravity. We are utterly unable of coming to Christ on our own. If we think of the parable of the four soils, we all know that none of us are born as good soil. Right? We're born as rocky, hard-packed soil that is absolutely unresponsive to the gospel and in total animosity against God. And yet, how did we ever come to faith in Christ? Is it because we worked ourselves into good soil eventually over time? Is it because someone presented us finally with a persuasive enough argument to bring us to faith? The answer to those questions is no. We came to faith in Christ for one reason, because God, by the sovereign work of His Holy Spirit, as Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, 4 through 6, when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive with Christ and raised us up with Him and seated us in the heavenly places. That's God making bad soil into good soil. That's God bringing a fruitful harvest from a barren soil. It was once barren, He made it good. And so when we look out at our culture and we see barrenness, what we have to remember is that God is the Lord of the harvest, and He is able to make a harvest grow miraculously from that barren land through the blessing of regeneration. That's how the good harvest comes. It doesn't come naturally. It does require the sovereign, supernatural intervention of God when He takes that hardened heart and makes it a heart of flesh through the Holy Spirit. That's what happens. It can be summed up in this very, very simple statement. Regeneration precedes faith. That's the source of our encouragement. Regeneration precedes faith. What does that mean? It means God can make a harvest grow in a barren land. He can make faith sprout out from unbelief through the work of His Spirit and through the blood of Christ. That's what we have to believe. Now, let me give you a few examples that we, I believe we see in history of God doing this very thing I'm describing to you, of taking barren land and making it fruitful. Consider the Soviet Union for a moment. And I know the Soviet Union is not at all perfect. That's not what I'm suggesting. But 50 years ago, where was the Soviet Union? 50 years ago, if we had asked our grandparents, is the Soviet Union ripe for the harvest? Or is it barren? Our grandparents, or parents, would have said, absolutely not. The Iron Curtain's in place. 
The Soviet Union is one of the most barren places on earth. It has mandated atheism. It is absolutely and systemically opposed to Christ at every level. It is barren and sterile. There is no harvest to be had there. But what happened in history since? What happened to that barren soil of the Soviet Union? Well, this is what happened. Christ the King tore down that Iron Curtain. And when the Good Shepherd, after tearing down that Iron Curtain, what did he do? He went in after his sheep. That's what he did. The Iron Curtain didn't get in his way. The Shepherd had sheep there. And he got to them. And he's still getting them. How do we know that? Well, because at Presbytery, for the Tyndale Presbytery, we need to have translators, or we've had to have translators in the past. Mr. Harmon knows he's been there for those meetings. Why? Because we have Siberian pastors at Presbytery with us who don't speak English but only speak Russian. Why are they there? Because the harvest is plentiful. That's why. Because Christ has broken into the Soviet Union, which no longer exists, and has begun to gather his sheep from there. He's taken that barren soil, and he's made it fruitful instead. I can say this from very personal experience myself. My own family has gathered a harvest from the former Soviet Union in the, in the form of my, own, my, my dear daughter Alexandra, who we adopted last year from Ukraine. Ukraine is one of the former Soviet bloc nations. And yet here we see a harvest in our own household as a result of that. She was just baptized several weeks ago. That's the harvest. There's fruit coming from a barren land. Fifty years ago, Christian households could not have gone into the Soviet Union and adopted their orphans. Now we can, because of Christ, because the harvest is plentiful. So saints, while the field God has placed us in may look barren and full of unbelief, believe Jesus. Believe Him and work earnestly in the harvest. Am I trying to guilt you into doing evangelism? Not at all. I don't want this to be something where we feel guilty because we're not doing enough. Because we know the gospel is not about doing enough. The gospel is about being faithful to God out of gratefulness to Him. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verses 6 through 9. I planted Apollos water, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Here's what I'm saying to you, saints. Here's what we need to do. We need to plant and water with all of our hearts. Because God brings the growth. Realize that. Our responsibility is not causing growth to occur. Our responsibility is merely to sow and to do so with all of our hearts. So that, that's, that's what this means. It means if you share the gospel with an unbelieving person and they don't respond in faith, you have not failed. If you have faithfully presented the gospel, the word of the cross, Christ crucified, and they reject it, you have still been faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because you have done what he calls you to do. You have sown the gospel. You have sown the word. And leave it to the Holy Spirit to cause growth to come. We're not Arminians. We don't make it grow. We know that God makes it grow. So sow and do it in faith. Do it believing that God will give new hearts to those with, to whom you preach, with whom you sow. Believe that he will bring the harvest. So again, we return to the question, well, okay, Nate, this is so wonderful, but how do I do this? How do I go about sowing?
sowing the gospel? How do I go about entering into the harvest? Saints, I don't have enough time to walk through all the ways that we can do that in our lives. It's a wonderful question, but here's today's answer to that. And here's the, start, here's the starting point for how to enter into the work of the harvest. I don't have five or ten steps to give you. All I have is this message. Do it, whatever you do, do it earnestly and do it in faith. Not half-heartedly, not with a limp wrist, but with confidence. Confidence in our Lord who has promised. Confidence in our Lord who can take dead, unregenerate hearts and make them alive in Christ. Do it earnestly. Plant and water like a farmer who's expecting a plentiful harvest because Jesus says it is plentiful. Don't plant and harvest like a farmer who has no hope or expectation. Plant like one who believes what our Lord has said to us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost, let's pray. Thank you for listening to these excerpts from the worship service of Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in these messages, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact Pastor Dirk DeWinkle through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.